Hello, and welcome to an episode of Bitcoin in Asia from Bitcoin Magazine. I'm John Riggins, and our guest this week is Nishant Sharma, a longtime Bitcoin mining industry insider in China, who is now the founder and CEO of Bloxbridge Consulting, a communication strategy and advisory firm focused on the Bitcoin mining sector and serving some of its largest companies. Sean has been in the mining space since 2014, including four years at Bitmain in Beijing. We discuss his time at Bitmain, seeing it grow from a two-digit employee company to a dominant player in the industry, trends in the mining space outside of China, state of mainstream and industry media coverage, and more. Support for this podcast comes from Paxful. At Paxful, they believe that Bitcoin is more than just a digital currency. It's a new way of life that's going to completely disrupt the global financial system. Paxful is a people-powered marketplace for money transfers with anyone, anywhere, at any time. Using over 300 different payment methods, you can buy and sell Bitcoin using bank transfers, cash, and even gift cards. Borderless transactions, the ability to start a business, and opportunities for social good, Paxful is set to change the world. Create an account today and get your free Bitcoin wallet. Begin trading right away. You'll never look at your money the same way again. Also brought to you by Bitcoin Black Friday. Bitcoin Black Friday is back. The focus is on building the Bitcoin circular economy. The Black Friday staple since 2012 will feature deals on must-have Bitcoin products, the best discounts of the year from Bitcoin accepting merchants, and ample opportunities to stack sats. If you are a Bitcoin accepting merchant, go to bitcoinblackfriday.com to list a Black Friday deal. And if you want to take advantage of the discounts and sat stacking opportunities, sign up there for email updates, bitcoinblackfriday.com. Now on to Nishant. Nishant, at long last, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, great to be here. I've been following the Bitcoin in Asia podcast for a while now, and I'm glad to be able to contribute. Oh, for sure. Hey, that's, that's, a, that's a great introduction. I like it. And for those who uh, aren't quite familiar with you yet, they'll become more familiar with you. But can you start out with just kind of a brief intro of yourself, some of your history in the space, kind of where your career has taken you over the past few years? Sure. So I joined the space in 2014, working in the Bitcoin miner making sector full time. And then when the 2015 market crash happened, that company we were working with uh, went bust because we couldn't keep with the rising difficulty and the uh, market crash. And so I joined the leader in the space, which was Bitcoin. And since then, it's been a roller coaster ride through the Bitcoin scaling debate, a lot of other PR battles that Bitcoin was involved in because of its influential role in the space. And it grew very fast, like one of the fastest grown tech companies in the last decade, probably the fastest. It, it, it's rise to, you know, from 100 employees when I joined to 4,000 was crazy. Got to learn a lot, got to learn a lot from the space, got to learn a lot from being in the Bitcoin scaling debate and all the open source, uh, all the battles that go on in open source democracies that bit- cryptocurrencies have become, not just Bitcoin, Monero, Siacoin, Litecoin, so many. Yeah, I learned, got to learn a lot. And then, yeah, then I started my own firm. For sure. That's the brief. And then, uh, so 2014, obviously pretty early, you start essentially a mining company at that point. You touched on it, but it was a mining company, fierce competition, especially in China then. I believe you're in Shenzhen, and then you joined Bitmain at 100 yeah. employee oh. size after that. Yeah, the, the competition was fierce, not just from China, but US. I think they were geographically distributed, minor, so. ma- minor makers back then. In fact, ASICs, the idea of ASIC started in the US. The very first companies that talked about ASICs, uh, I think the first one was Hashfast, who talked about an ASIC uh, chip for Bitcoin mining. Interestingly, the first company that I worked for full-time in the space had, was using Hashfast chips, which Hashfast couldn't capitalize on very well. So during Hashfast's liquidation, we purchased those chips and we started making miners from those chips, high-end 
home focused miners, I mean, for home use, they were silent using liquid cool, proprietary liquid cool technology. Yeah, it was a great ride. And we delivered a lot of miners, unlike a lot of other companies at the same time. So I don't know if the viewers know it, but this is interesting to know that in 2013, there was this proliferation of ASIC makers all over the world, especially in the West. Everyone, because everyone saw the analogy with the California gold rush, everyone thought that you know, that the tool makers will make more money than the gold diggers themselves. And so Mm -hmm. everyone started trying to make ASICs. Yeah, but not everyone survived because of a lot of challenges that no one had foreseen. And everyone, uh, no one had foreseen such short product development cycles because the Bitcoin difficulty is rising so fast. Within three months, your machine becomes obsolete. You need to come up with the next gen chip. That had never happened in the history of semiconductors. No company does that, you know come out with a new chip, put it to market within three months, and then come out with the next one within two or two months more. So yeah, no one could keep up. But some players emerged and uh, just evolved eventually. Yeah, that's fascinating. And maybe a little bit more color on uh, kind of how those winners emerged and how Bitmain, kind of in your perspective as an outside observer at first, kind of became the, that leader in China early. Even, you know, that sounds small now, but at 100 employees, Bitmain was large and you know, relative to the industry at that point too. Maybe a little more color on how Bitmain got to be that position at the time that you were starting to join. Oh, yeah. Bitmain wasn't surely the giant in the Bitcoin space that it, that it became later at the time I joined because there were still other miner makers and there were some very competitive ones, including uh, Spondulese in, in Israel. There were still some ASIC miner machines people were using, although Friedcat, the founder, had disappeared. There were still some Avalon chips uh, and miners that were fairly competitive. But Bitmains were just emerging to be the most competitive with their S5 miner. After S5, S7. S5 is when they started making one of the most competitive chips, miners. And S7 is when they started rising to glory, and S9 is when their position was established for good. Yeah, it was on that path. And insiders knew that they were on this path, but outsiders didn't even know there was a company called Bitmain. Yeah, this was before Jihan came on social media, on Twitter, and started talking in the great scaling debate, and people got to know who what Bitmain is. They own Antpool and all these big mining pools, and who is Jihan, the founder. Yeah, this all happened uh, around the same time that I joined Bitmain. Yeah. So you, you joined. What's your role initially when you joined? When I joined, I was supposed to bring the oomph in the miners. Like the miners did not look very good compared to other competitors who eventually went bust because they were focused more on looks, I guess, than performance. And so I, my, my job was to market them very well outside China and improve the brand's image, which wasn't very, which was not very existent. It was all, all based on the efficiency of the chips. So that was my initial role. And uh, at the same time, Bitmain was also diving, or Jihan was diving into the block size debate. So my role uh, changed rapidly uh, soon, uh, soon after I joined. Right. And so you uh, essentially end up being head of global communications there for a number of years. Maybe kind of give us some context for what, you know, there aren't many kind of Western facing employees inside of China at that time, maybe a couple of hand, handfuls. Give us some kind of killer on what it's like to be that Western-facing communications role inside a company like Bitmain, pretty Chinese company, not a ton of employees. Talk a little bit about that kind of atmosphere and kind of navigating that, I guess, for, for those early years. Yeah, that's an interesting question because Bitmain is, as you said, a traditional Chinese company in many ways, like the work culture, etc. 
But on the other hand, it also combined a lot of characteristics of young crypto startups because the company was young in every way. The founders were very young. All employees, most of the employees were young. And it was a very crypto company in a way because Jihan was a big uh, crypto believer. He was, he was like one of the first cypherpunks from China. He's the guy who translated the Bitcoin white paper. So all of this reflected in the company culture as well. So it was kind of torn between these two. And this was still when it was smaller. Bitcoin was torn between these two kind of cultures. And I guess I fit in more in the crypto side of things, whereas other, some other foreign employees and colleagues, uh, they were working in not so customer facing roles or working in works, jobs like chip design or sales. And they were not so involved in the crypto part of it or the crypto discussions that go on because their job did not require it. So that made my role unique in this way because I was involved in, the, in all the crypto conflicts going on, so many of them going on at that time. Yeah, so it was, uh, like I said, it was challenging and no one in the world had been in my role because there was no other big company as big and influential and impactful in the industry as Bitmain. When I say impactful and influential, I just don't mean in terms of PR. Uh, Bitmain wasn't very influential in terms of PR because that's not what they focused on. But they made very efficient chips because of which they become an integral part of the Bitcoin technology or the Bitcoin network. So anything they do did affected the whole ecosystem. And that is how they were influential and impactful in the industry. So every decision had to be made with a lot of care of thinking about the long-term effects on the Bitcoin ecosystem uh, and on the community. So what I, I was uh, responsible for, all the responsibilities were very unique. No one, I guess, in the space had, had to deal with such responsibilities ever before. Or ever yeah, again, sure. because there has been no unique influential company, influential in the way I described, ever again. Definitely a unique time, you know, in Bitcoin and Bitmain, obviously one of the more unique companies in that time. Interesting time to be there. You touched on kind of the company culture there. Can you talk a little bit more about how you saw that company culture change as it went from a hundred person company to a four thousand person company? You know, and essentially your your responsibilities remained, you know, similar and the scale of kind of the, the kind of magnitude of the importance of what you're doing grew, but you're still running kind of that from that 100 to 4,000. Talk about that growth a little bit and how company culture changed during that growth. That's a very good question. So as I informed, there were like two cultures and the company was torn between. And it could be torn between because it was still smaller and evolving very fast. But when it grew very big, when it was like almost, uh, you know, more than 3,000 employees, almost 4,000 at one point of time, it couldn't afford to just be torn between these two cultures. And it couldn't also afford to be just like a crypto company where things are less organized and things are more agile. These things tend to suffer when you become more established, when you are more process-driven and you start adopting industry standard time-tested processes. It became more of a traditional company than when it became that big. And I, like uh, almost all employees uh, at that time, also experienced some frustrations that any small company that becomes a traditional and big company face, uh, I mean, employees in all such companies face uh, similar frustrations. We face some of the same. Yeah, that is how the company culture changed. Sure. And you know, you're, you're kind of touching on how process-wise, operationally, Bitmain was kind of growing into a more traditional style, I guess, which is necessary as you scale to size like that. On the other hand, at the same time, getting kind of into ideological battles that most traditional companies wouldn't get into. You know, Bitcoin is obviously a different different playing field than most traditional industries. But so so there starts to be kind of some ideological battles that you touched on earlier. 
a lot of controversy around Bitmain when you're in kind of a tough spot as the communicator for Bitmain's kind of you know internal thinking and strategy around this stuff. Kind of give us some context for you know what you're thinking at that point, maybe some around the decisions that were made and and kind of uh, your take on how things turned out, I guess. Yeah, thanks for asking that. There are a lot of things to share, but I'll keep it brief. So there's another aspect of Bitmain's culture, which is, or especially when it comes to communication with the crypto communities that we operated in, which is that it's also a Chinese company. If we were an American company, everyone in the company, every every function of the company understands how to deal with PR better than otherwise, because China is very different in terms of communication than the rest of the world because of the social political uh, realities of China. That put Bitmain in a very tough position because now we are dealing with this very radical, radically transparent communities, which evolved from the open source movement of the 80s slash 90s. Then there's Bitmain, a Chinese company, where open source movement never took off like in the West and where transparency by design within the social political system is not considered very important. So almost all functions of Bitmain uh, did not, were not able to adapt to the kind of communication requirements or needs of Bitmain in the cryptocurrency communities. That made my role very challenging. So I spent more time uh, than most people wouldn't imagine, but I spent more time with trying to persuade different functions of Bitmain internally to step up to the plate than I did fighting battles outside. That took more of my energy than battles outside. Now, that was something very interesting. And that is also something that continuously kept uh, unconsciously bringing up to, in my mind, the need or the gap that existed in China in PR. So other companies would also face similar issues when they become uh, equally impactful in the cryptocurrency space, which eventually evolved into my decision of uh, starting my own firm later. And so you, you, you know, did, did decide to kind of step out on your own, saw a need there. And now you're essentially kind of work with some of the biggest brands, biggest companies in Bitcoin mining as kind of a communications guru, you know, you kind of select, select, select selection of uh, large clients. Talk a little bit about that decision to talk a little bit more about that, that decision to go out on your own and kind of that gap you're looking to fill and some of the ways that you've started to, I guess. Yeah, thanks for asking that because uh, what I described, uh, what eventually evolved into my decision to start my own firm, it was just part of it. The major reason to, of doing it was when we were scouting for a PR firm at Bitmain, we tried boutique firms who took pride in being crypto experts, turned out their own experience and network and resources and knowledge was way lesser than my own. And so they were not useful for us. And then when we went for bigger firms, including the world's biggest PR firms, they did not have the crypto expertise that we needed. And we needed more strategic advice because of the kind of uh, unique challenges we were dealing with. Uh, not just, you know, we just, our motive was not just to get our brand out there, which seemed to be most of the need in the cryptocurrency industry at that time. You know, this was a 2017 boom. Most uh, projects want to just be more popular than other projects and capitalize on all the crypto hype. That was also what uh, tailored most uh, boutique PR firms to offer those kind of services. And that's not what we needed. What we needed was something more strategic, which requires a deep understanding of the industries that we operate in, a deep understanding of our business, deep industry of deep and deep uh, understanding of the beliefs that drive the cryptocurrency communities that we operate in. And so, after working with the, one of the world's biggest PR firms, I realized that this, there was this big gap in the industry of subject matter experts in the PR side. 
people who have been working for decades in the industry, nothing like that existed for cryptocurrency mining or even cryptocurrencies or blockchain. There was no PR expert who was focused on blockchain who had served in the industry for a decade, even a de- even five years. There was no one like that who had worked in the industry before starting out into the PR side of things. So this uh, strategic advice that was needed by a lot of firms like Bitmain was lacking. And that's why I decided to start my own firm. To put it simply, when you go to a PR firm, and if you're an automotive company, there will be an expert who's worked decades in the industry, brings long, many years of experience from the industry. Same with aerospace, same with uh, semiconductor, same with furniture, same with every other, every other industry, because these industries have been around for a while. But when it comes to cryptocurrencies, there were no such experts uh, or subject matter experts, even at the world's biggest PR firms. The only people who were uh, claiming to be PR experts in cryptocurrency were those who had just entered the space in 2017 boom to help ICOs or blockchain projects get more publicity. Yeah, that was not the most all, relevant work. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, which is fine because that was also a need in the industry. So they were filling that need. So yeah, so that's why I started out to fill that gap. Yeah, and sure. So now our clients are institutional scale mining companies at this moment. They are mainly in the US, then Russia, then China. And we take, as you mentioned already, only a select, full, a select few clients because we have a limit on every uh, how many clients we take at any point of time. So we can keep the kind of uh, service quality we offer. Our clients are really satisfied with the services we offer, more than satisfied. And being on the other side of the desk, not so long ago myself, I know that we, what we offer is much more than and what any PR firm can offer. Because of my experience in network in the industry, we are not just offering public relations strategy counsel, but we are also offering advisory services, connecting them with other players, giving them some strategic advices on the business, like when to purchase machines, where to purchase from, procurement channels, what would help and where it connects with public relations, etc. So we are, we are well positioned to provide a way more holistic strategic counsel than any PR firm can. Yeah, kind of unique experiences uh, put you in an interesting spot. Mining is, we've seen a lot of momentum around the industrialization size-wise of mining operations, you know, in the US just in the last week or so with DCG's news and, you know, rumors of bigger stuff still to come. So it's, it's a cool spot to be. And again, the experience of going from, you know, first marketing a, a small product to the West in terms of Bitmain's early early mining hardware to their process of, you know, launching an IPO in Hong Kong, kind of toward the closer to the end of your tenure. So it's an interesting set of experiences. Any, anything else on, can you give any more color on the customers you're dealing with now and kind of the, what, how you're thinking about the growth and size of the industry? Like as we enter a new bull run and, you know, we essentially see a, maybe a order of magnitude growth in the industry and how mining plays into that. How are you thinking about kind of the growth of your customers specifically, just in size and capital required to be one of these top couple players? What are you seeing there and how are you thinking about those trends? It's, it's great that you bring it up because this is drastically changing. And this year is probably the year where mining will see a big shift geographically from the east to the west. Now, what we are seeing is a lot of institutional capital is entering the mining space. Actually, the bear market of the last one or two years, two years, helped that. They, it propelled that because before, institutions were who wanted to get exposure to blockchain and did not have that yet were torn between different options. And usually the most high blockchain projects, putting phones on the blockchain, putting diamonds on the blockchain, etc., putting everything on the blockchain would get a lot of attention and even investments. But during the bull, uh, bear market, 
mining is what was what was still making money was a time tested model and a lot of the institutional capital funneled into mining during this time and even a lot of talent in the last uh, three years mm-hmm. a lot of talent moved from blockchain projects and ICOs to uh, cryptocurrency mining and now it's moving to DeFi as we speak mining benefited from the bear market in that way it saw more institutional capital being pumped in from the west it got more industrialized as you already mentioned and recent announcements uh, like from DCG Foundry who, who is also one of the clients of our advisory services it, uh, the announcements are a result of that uh, institutionalization of mining where Foundry is trying to bring more transparency more reliability of supply chains for mining companies in North America and they're doing a great job at it like the recent announcement that we just helped Foundry with was with Microbeat the second biggest manufacturer of mining machines to establish an alternative supply chain based in Southeast Asia which helps increase their reach in North America also bring more reliability because now foundry can secure ahead of time a lot of machines from microbeat and foundry's clients can get access reliable access and on time to these machines which wasn't the case before because because bitpain was the only player in the industry and there has been some issues at bitpain so customers have not been very happy with recent delays yeah this is a good news another side effect or of the institutionalization of mining for sure and you touched on kind of that new supply chain there uh, in terms of southeast asia to the us for microbeat and bitmain i guess you know one of its main advantages for the last couple of years had been its existing supply chain and yeah. kind of the efficiency also, of its um, just for the record uh, bitmain already has a supply chain in southeast asia uh, in malaysia now microbeat has one too right So Bitmain had this had this operation in Malaysia where they've been uh, able to avoid some of the tariffs shipping things from China to the US. Now MicroBT is kind of on equal footing there. Still some internal drama that Bitmain as you mentioned. I guess to to focus kind of first on kind of this landscape of hardware competition. So we have, you know, with Bitmain, we have MicroBT who's made a real push this year. Can you kind of lay out the rest of the competitive landscape there? How you're thinking about, you know, it developing into the next bull cycle? Anything else of note outside of those two? So for semiconductor industry it's the entry barrier is very high. So when you are taping out chips at these cutting edge process nodes like 8 nanometer or any sub 10 nanometer nodes the entry barrier is so high because just taping out costs multiples of tens of millions of dollars and then you are not even sure if you will get the allocation you have to even try to get the allocation from the fab which is the most competitive fab for now are TSMC and Samsung you're not sure if you will even get the allocation from their factory first you're not certain of the results of these tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars that you spend in tape out because of the design of semiconductors and fundamentals you're not sure of the yield of the how the turnout will be there are simulations there are softwares to help you with that but there are limitations when you work with say 5 nanometer or lower process nodes because these softwares and simulations were based on higher process nodes so they are not very reliable with that so the yield is often uncertain so you are betting on with tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars uh, first second this is all assuming you get the allocation from these factories who have clients like apple nvidia amd and so many other chip makers in line it's the entry barrier is really high which makes it harder for other players to also compete 
Having said that, MicroBT wasn't there about two years ago. No one thought much about MicroBT, and now it's the most formidable competitor to Bitmain. You might see another player from maybe not China, maybe from the US emerge in the next three years, but it won't be before two or three years because they will take some time to get where MicroBT and Bitcoin already are. Right. Yeah, yeah. And the first chip is usually not very competitive. So it takes about two iterations or two generations more to become competitive with the leaders. Yeah. So certainly one of the kind of biggest stories in mining is is MicroBT's kind of growing market share there and the quality of its machines. How much of that is self-inflicted from Bitmain in terms of letting a competitor kind of get into its space? Do you have any other any other thoughts that you would share from the outside now on Bitmain's kind of dynamics of Bitmain now, their prospects moving ahead? Well, MicroBT's business has certainly benefited from all the internal issues at Bitmain. People or customers are not sure when they make orders, whether they will be delivered or on time. So they look for alternatives, even if they're less efficient. So they are drawn to MicroBT. Having said that, there was a research report from BitMEX, and also it is in line with what my observations are from the industry. Most people are still despite all these headaches that they have with placing orders with Bitmain and getting them on time or, or reliably, they still want to go with Bitmain because first, they're used to it. Second, it's way more efficient. When I say used to it, it's not just because they are used to working with Bitmain. It's because their infrastructure is adapted to Bitmain's machines. Their racks, everything they need infrastructure-wise is made for Bitmain's miners. So there's a cost moving on. And everyone wants the most efficient machines for long-term business growth. So they're not sure if uh, the next generation from any other player will be more efficient than Bitmain's miners. So they want to be prepared with all this infrastructure for the future. And so they, despite all these problems and issues at Bitmain, they still prefer to go with Bitmain. Having said that, I don't know how long this will continue. Like businesses want to move on. They want to continue making money. So if Bitmain's internal issues are not solved very soon. It might reach a point of no return where MicroBT gets a head start, which is hard to beat. It'd be fascinating to watch it, watch it play out and so many variables that, that you're touching on there that are playing into it. You also touched on kind of maybe just trends over this next bull cycle of hash power moving moving westward in some sense. You, talk, you touched on a couple of large projects in, in the US that have launched. Need more color on that. I guess maybe first, you know, we've heard a lot of rumors about kind of the rainy season in China and how it affected miners in Sichuan. Can you give some color to kind of the current state of mining in China? Um, and then we can talk a little bit about how things may be migrating and distributing around the world. But kind of give us the, the layout of mining in China now and any difficulties that you've seen or if they're overblown in the rainy season in Sichuan. And I guess the tax situation and some of these other northern provinces. So the difficulties that you read about in the news are surely overblown because they are not new. Miners in China, despite what you may think from an outsider's perspective, are very used to doing business like this. Whatever happens, they've been doing business with it for six, seven years now. And mining in China hasn't changed. It's the same as it has been. It's growing rapidly like it has always been. And miners in China are not thinking about moving out of China. They will continue making more data centers, buying more machines, which they are. However, the scenario in US has drastically changed in the one last one or two years, now because of the advent of institutional capital. Now you have institutions who are betting big on mining and 
they are more competitive than Chinese miners in the sense that Chinese miners are not institutionally backed. They are more in it for a short term. Now, the definition of long-term changes when institutional capital starts coming in, a Chinese miner may be thinking for the next one year or maybe two years, but institutional players in the US who are entering the space are thinking much more long-term. Certainly a DCG so, is one that's thinking long-term about Bitcoin. Just yeah, and the all the number of listed companies who are mining in North America, whether it's Riot, Core Scientific, or uh, so many others, or Greenwich, which is a power plant, and also crypto mining uh, hybrid, they are all thinking long-term because that's the way they are used to doing traditional investments too, which are based on long-term, more stability, lower risks. And in China, because institutional capital cannot access mining because of legalities around it, you only have players who are looking at shorter time periods and are okay with higher risks. And that also limits how much money they can put in at a certain point of time or how much commitment they can make when they're building a new mining farm. So that's slowed down the pace of growth in the mining business in China compared to the U.S. That's, and that's interesting. The fast growth in the U.S. is also slowing down the growth in China because of the limited supply of machines. Now, North American mining machines are purchasing most of the machines, and they are, most of the machines until next year are sold out already at two North American companies. And miners in China... I cannot get their hands on machines anymore until at least the end of this year. That's very interesting. Before, it used to be opposite, where miners in China would secure right. these machines beforehand, and miners in the U.S. cannot get their hands on the machine because of various reasons. And you, one of the reasons used to be lack of capital, which isn't the case anymore. Yeah. Can you give any more color to the, that MicroBT and, and Foundry deal? Why they're getting kind of this access to uh, that flow, first dibs on it? and the value that they're adding in terms of micro BT's supply chain upfront money, what's kind of the, how are they getting in front of the line there and how valuable is that in terms of positioning against these smaller miners in China, kind of just in that race to get miners? How does that play into it? So Foundry has this vision to bring more transparency, reliability, and professionalize the mining business. Now, in line with this vision, they have secured through this partnership the first or earliest batches of uh, the M30S miners that will be produced in the Southeast, new Southeast Asian facility of MicroBT. And then they can provide their clients who are institutional scale mining businesses in North America who either require capital or they require access to much more mining machines to grow their business. Now they can enter into more partnerships with these players and offer them more certain, reliable, timely delivery of miners. Uh, for, from this sense, it's a win-win for everyone. It's a win-win for the industry where mining businesses can more reliably get mining machines and plan accordingly, which wasn't the case uh, before. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you mentioned that they're, they're client, clients out of China and uh, I believe in Russia. What are you seeing kind of trend-wise in mining in kind of that more Eurasia region, Russia, Kazakhstan, places like this, and flows... Continuing on the, the topic of how mining is going to be distributing you know, around the world over the next cycle, what are you seeing in that part of the world? So in my view, Russia is highly underrated as a mining destination. It combines the best of both worlds, East and the West. So mining can offer you very competitive OPEX and CAPEX in comparison to China. They have electricity rates as low or even cheaper than China. And then it brings you more stability 
in terms of the regulatory environment of the West, which is a problem in China, where the governments are often changing. And there are so many cases about that. And China uh, and Russia is very close to China. So the supply chains are not affected because of a lot of reasons, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a trade war, and they also have great bilateral relations, these two countries. So Russia is very well positioned to be the next mining hotbed. But at the same time, there's more institutional capital in the US and uh, investors in the US feel not comfortable when they are investing in Russia because of just public relations, really. So Russian mining facilities on the institutional scale ones have this challenge to overcome, the PR challenge. And if they succeed at that, and then, yeah, then you will might see even institutional capital from the US flowing into mining facilities in Russia. And then there are some other former Soviet countries that are coming up in the news as mining hotbeds these days, like Kazakhstan, you mentioned. However, I'm not so bullish on such countries yet because because they don't have the natural resources that can back the low-cost electricity in the long term. So they have non-renewable sources of energy right now, which are subsidized by the government to encourage mining at this stage. But then the policies may change, the government may change, because there are no natural resources backing renewable sources. So these things can change fast. So I'm not sure bullish on that. But Russia, especially the Siberian region, they have the surplus hydroelectric capacity, which was built during the Soviet times because it was a hub for aluminum production. It still is, probably produces 6% of the world's aluminum comes from there or even more. And this was because at that time, about 60% of the cost of production of aluminum used to depend on the price of electricity or 60% of the cost was electricity cost. So naturally, aluminum smelters would be where you can find surplus and cheap electricity. And so during the Soviet Union, the government built these massive hydroelectric dams, some of which were the biggest in the world at that time. They've already paid the, the costs off decades ago. And now it's a surplus electricity they are producing. It doesn't pollute the environment. It doesn't have emissions like other sources of energy used for mining elsewhere. It's way more sustainable. And looking at that, I think Russia is well positioned. One of, one of many Cold War policies still rippling through history. <laughs> Great context for all that. Love it. Maybe back to, all right, we kind of touched on some of the geographical oh, distribution. Another, another thing just to add here might be interesting sure. for the viewers to know is, so even if the government wants to encourage mining, but they don't have the natural prerequisites for a sustainable energy supply, like water resources, etc., that the Siberian region has. So they may give you free oil. But even if they give you free oil, the generators that produce energy from the oil cost a lot. And they have an eight years life cycle with, after which they need to be maintained or need to be serviced, which costs a lot of money. And so if you even if you have free fuel by the government, because the government just wants to make the country the next mining hub, you still have a huge cost because of this, the generation facilities, which are just new. They need to be paid off. Someone needs to pay the cost for the generation and the maintenance of these very expensive generators. So even with free fuel, it's not very competitive. That's, that's something I learned from our clients. Our clients ran some numbers and they... This was their conclusion that even with free oil, you cannot compete with hydro surplus hydroelectric power supply. Lots of variables in play. And you know, generally want those variables to be as stable 
you know, so you can for, look forward as, as they can be. Mining pools. So we, we've seen kind of a consolidation or we've seen a most mining pool uh, operation has come out of China, kind of a, a majority of the top five, I would say, Chinese companies. How do you see that? How, how do you see that playing out moving forward? Any thoughts just on kind of that mining pool space? Obviously, Bitmain had a couple under its umbrella while you were there. The mining space, the mining pool space has changed drastically since I joined the space. When I joined uh, this pool called ghash.io, which was in partnership with cex.io, maybe they were separate companies in the beginning, but then they one of them acquired the other, so they became one. Uh, ghash.io used to be the pool that had almost 50% of the hash rate, and no one dreamt of any other pool that would take over. And that's also that was also one of the criticisms of Bitcoin and one of the reasons for supporting other altcoins at that time, like Ethereum, because Bitcoin was getting centralized under this one pool called ghash.io. And now no one's ever heard of that pool. Anyone who's joined the space in the last two years, they are not even familiar with this pool called ghash.io. It doesn't exist. And pool emerged uh, very strong when I joined Bitcoin. It was, it, it was already the leader. And while that was happening, Jihan, who's a cypherpunk himself inside in many ways, wanted to decentralize Bitcoin's hash rate because he also saw a threat when one mining pool is so big. So he decided to have an open source mining pool with a separate team. And he started BDC.com. And then BDC.com became the number one pool very soon, replacing that pool, which was the top pool. And then three guys from BDC.com who, worked, who were in its founding team they left, they started a competing pool. And after a few years, <laughs> their pool becomes the number one. And you don't have ghash.io doesn't exist. And pool, which was number one, is number three. BTC.com is a number two. And now there's F2 pool, which has always been around in the top 10, always since a long time now. Now you have Poolin, this new pool that was founded by former BTC.com employees and F2 pool competing for the top place. And you have BDC.com and Antpool in the top five. So my point being, it's changing all the time. So mm -hmm. it's not, I don't see it as a problem because if the same pools stayed on top, so that means there are some anti-competitive factors in place. There is uh, some uh, centralization. Maybe there are some entry barriers that cannot be overcome by new players, but none of that seems to be the case. And so it's always changing. I mean, the landscape of mining pools. And looking forward, First, looking back, China is where most of the mining has always been since, not always, but since a very long time. So the pools were here because the pools want to serve their customers. If they are closer, they're in the same geographical region, it helps. It helps in terms of latencies. It helps in terms of customer support. It helps in terms of being able to meet in person as well, which they do. They have BD teams that go to these mining farms and meet them. So that is why you have most of the pools based in China. But as you see mining increasing elsewhere, you might also see pools uh, coming up in these places. Or you may see Chinese players uh, setting up offices in other geographic, geographical regions to be closer to their uh, new customers. So let's see how that plays out. Might even be a new pool that we've not heard about ever. It doesn't exist yet, but might be the biggest in the next one year, the way yeah. it has been since so long. Makes sense. Just super competitive vertical to be in, like you know, everything we've been talking about, really. Oh, uh, there's something else that happened in the last one year or this year specifically in pools, which is a lot of exchanges became competitive with pools. So before pools were making were a good way to make profit because it's a software. Most of it is open source, thanks to BDC.com slash Bitmain, open sourcing BDC.com so tech. So it's very easy for someone to start their pool. 
and start generating revenue. And they were generating, they were charging up to 4% of pool fees before. So they were, it was very profitable business. But this year, because of the competition, especially after Binance also started their pool and other exchanges became competitive with fees, they could, I will explain later how. So the fees have dropped from 4% to 2% and they are going even lower. So that's changed how pools do business. Uh, now, what pools are doing is they're trying to get some more downstream sources of income. So if they have a customer or a mining farm who's using their pool, the, now they are also trying to start wallets or other custodian services for this mining farm customer to save his mined bitcoins or to hedge his risks for the future using some financial products offered by the, this wallet. Now, pools are, focus, are focusing a lot on these add-on services or, or downstream services. And that is why these exchanges could offer almost zero fee for their pools like Hobi, OKCoin, Binance, because they are more focused on the downstream services, which is the main business of exchanges. So yeah, this year we've seen the mining pool business totally change from being a profitable one to one that is more focused on competing in terms of financial products for the mining customers. Yeah, that's a super interesting development. Good point there. And it's been pretty interesting to watch how fast the Hobi's and Binance Pools have have been able to kind of capture some some share with some of those kind of kind of entrenched advantages of already running wallets and exchange services and things like that. So super super interesting development. Um, and so you have a pool in starting a lot of financial services for their customers to be competitive with the other exchange owned pools. You might see yeah, and announcements or BTC.com working with also. Three Arrows and and BlockFi yeah, and BlockFi. Yep. Yeah. And you might hear some announcements about BTC.com and Antpool forming some partnership with Matrixport to do the same, to stay competitive. Yeah. All, all, all super interesting to, to keep an eye on. Back, at, back a little bit. Thanks for all the color and, and kind of analysis of what's happening in mining. A little bit to kind of your kind of other expertise, which is kind of the communication side and what you're doing for you know your customers. Talk a little bit about how you're kind of seeing you know or thinking about crypto press, you know Bitcoin press versus traditional press and kind of Chinese media versus Western media. Just give us some color for kind of how you think about those landscapes and kind of why that expertise that someone like y'all brings to the table is valuable there. Now, crypto media is surely, surely new compared to established press, which has been around for decades, if not centuries, which has evolved a lot over time. So crypto media is less mature there, but there are a lot of crypto outlets now that are expanding their teams and trying to become like the Bloombergs of the crypto space and focusing on research and focusing on more in-depth articles, focusing on uh, stories that uh, answer the questions of investors, etc. So they are finding their niche, maturing more in the space, becoming more like traditional financial press, but for the crypto world, which is great to see. They're also generating more revenue. And with this revenue, they're able to hire professional writers or even attract some writers from mainstream press to write about crypto. So it's maturing fast. However, it has a long way to go to be the Bloomberg's or, uh, or, or the Economist or, or the Financial Times of the crypto space. But on the other hand, the, the great thing about crypto press is the, easier, uh, the easiness of working with them. So for example, if one of our clients gets some articles out on them or there's an announcement that they reported on, but there are some uh, corrections to be made or there's something they didn't get right, we can contact them and within a few minutes usually it's updated. The article is corrected. There's a disclosure to tell people that there was an error 
and everything is settled very fast, which doesn't happen in, with mainstream press, with Bloomberg's or Financial Times or other established outlets. So there's also this advantage of uh, being small for crypto press. Uh, let's see if they can maintain this agility and flexibility while they become bigger like traditional press. For sure. Great insight kind of overall on what's happening in mining, communication side of the business too. Close out with kind of a fun one, uh, one recommendation. So you've kind of lived all over from India to Shenzhen to Beijing now. One recommendation could be a restaurant, cultural site for someone who is going to be visiting one of those places to make sure and see. Recommendation. Well, there are some obvious ones when someone comes to Beijing. So I won't mention the most obvious ones, but I would surely recommend people to try the Hohai Lake, which is also where we met for the first time, John. There are some restaurants that have been working there since generations in the family. They offer very good Beijing hot pot, and some of them also offer very good Peking duck. I suggest anyone who visits Beijing, try them. All right, good stuff. I still like that Russian Beijing duck place. <laughs> yeah, uh, you can that's, that's hit up my John yeah. uh, if you want to know more about that. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, that's the first place you took me for, for uh, Beijing back. Good stuff all around. Sean, thanks for your time. Busy guy over there. Love, love seeing what you're doing. Keep it up. Thank you for having me, John. Sure. Catch up again. Yep. Quick reminder, all of the content in this episode is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments.